Hello everybody, and welcome to a new episode of Gaming in the Wild, a video games podcast about games from the artistic, creative side of the tracks, from indie to AAA. My name's John, I'm your host, I'm recording in Reykjavik, Iceland on Friday the 26th of May 2023, and I have a special episode for you this week, following up last week's episode, which was my um, solo take on the opening hours of Tears of the Kingdom. Um, this week I asked friend of the show, Kieran Daly, who you will know if you're a regular listener, he's always on the show around Games of the Year time, um, to come on and talk about the next steps in the game. So having talked about the, uh, the Great Sky Islands and the Hyrule Field and Lookout Landing, um, this episode we're going to talk about the Rito questline, we're going to talk about our steps into the deep of the game, and we're going to just broaden out the conversation a little bit. Um, once again, I've tried to make this as spoiler-free as possible. Um, we do spoil the Rito quest, though. We talk about that one in detail. And we do talk about the deep. We don't talk about the resolution of the deep, but we do talk about the deep and our experiences down there. Um, so this is a, a second episode about Tears of the Kingdom. It's not something that I normally do. Normally it's one episode, one game. But this game is just so big and has um, swept me up and swept up pretty much everyone in the show's Discord. Um, so it just feels like a game that deserves more. So we're giving it more. Um, also in this episode, we talk about Sony's state of play. We start off with that. So we run through the games that we were excited about and talk about all of the reveals. There were over 40 games revealed. We've got an indie top six, um, two AAA picks, and then we run through a few of the other ones as well. But this is quite a long episode. My conversation with Kieran was really fun and almost two hours long. Um, so before we dive into that, let me just say a big thank you to the show's latest patrons, uh, John and Wayne. Thank you very much to John and Wayne for signing up to become patrons of the show. If you would like to support this podcast, you can do so at patreon.com slash gaming in the wild for as little as a dollar a pound or a euro a month. All of that money goes into making the show sound better and uh, getting a URL and all of the associated costs of running the show. So thank you very much to all of my patrons. Um, if you become a patron, you get a Discord invite to join the community, um, a really pleasant corner of the internet to talk about games, to share wordles, to share uh, new game videos, and to talk about everything that's going on in your gaming life. It's a really fun place to be, and there are bonus episodes as well. So it's patreon.com slash gaminginthewild if you're interested in that. And with that said, let's move on to this wonderful conversation with Kieran Daly about The Legend of Zelda Tears of the Kingdom. So I'm very happy to be joined this week by friend of the show and sometime guest, Kieran Daly, my gaming mentor as I always like to introduce you. Uh, how are you, Kieran? Um, Buonasera, travellers. I'm good. It is uh, cloudy in Kent, and I've been playing a lot of Zelda. Yeah, we haven't had you on for a while. I think, was the last one um, Games of the Year? I think it might have been. I think it was Games of the Year. I think uh, I only had one game. That was Elden Ring. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if that, have I played any others. Uh, yeah, that might have been the last time. Right, and I think the last two times that you were on, you were playing Elden Ring, because you and I did the, obviously, like, the Elden Ring deep dive, it's just out and we're all excited episode. 
and then like six months later or eight months later we talked to you about games of the year and you were still playing Elden Ring and you you of all my friends I think were the most set on becoming Elden Lord out of anyone yeah um, and from what I hear it sounds like since we last spoke and since you last on the podcast you are indeed Elden Lord I mean it feels good you know uh, it's a good feeling being being Elden Lord. It feels better than when I wasn't. Uh, has it substantially changed my life? Uh, not really, but you know, on those hard days, I just look down at the, like the lands between from my throne and realize like it's sometimes it's worth it, you know. But I, was it worth not playing any other games for a year? I don't know. I mean. If you're a per like John, you're a person who likes to sort of enjoy a buffet or like a tapas and small plates and of games, you know, lots of different things of variety. Whereas I'm like one of those people you see like channel four documentaries about of like the man who only ate butter for a year, like these kind of like crisis, like people with problem gamers. So have I recovered from that? <laughs> I don't know. But I'm out of it and it's done. So that, that was a good 100 hours of my life. Right. And like you and I went into this as relative from soft noobs, right? And we were both kind of learning how to play those games. Yeah. Um, and I got I got to like, I think, Radon. And I said to you, Kieran, I think I'm near the end. And you were like, John, 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 John. <laughs> you, are, you are still in the, the, the early to mid game. But how yeah. was it? Like, how, like, what's your takeaway from this? Because I know that you've got this tendency, I think, to like, during a, during a playthrough, you'll often be moaning a little bit and you'll be like, oh man, this game, like Assassin's Creed Valhalla, like Elden Ring, and you're like, oh my God, I can't, I can't anymore, but I must. And you push yourself <laughs> through it. And it's like this kind of difficult middle moment in the game. But then mm -hmm. afterwards you get like um, the post-game feeling and look back on it. So looking back on all of Elden Ring now, like all the way up until all of that Margit, Godric, Radan, all of that stuff, all the way through to the bit that I haven't seen actually, which I guess is the capital and, um, and the end game. Like yeah. what's your, what's your kind of like look back on Elden Ring now with the hype has died down. You finished the game. I think it, it taught me some valuable lessons. You know, there is definitely something to that sort of, philosophy that from software fans point to of like this game you know the the guy Miyazaki who set out to make it like his his vision of like training people that teaching them that they should overcome adversity and persevere is uh it's like he did it you know he fundamentally did that well um so I definitely, you know, there's been moments even since then where I've had a hard day or I found something challenging and I've just been like, if I could become Elden Lord, I can do this uh, in the real world. So in that way, it's been valuable, you know? And I think as a game, I mean, maybe it shouldn't have been so big or it, having played Tears of the Kingdom, which we'll get onto later, uh, they could have been more variety in the world than just stuff that wants to kill you, you know? There were a few puzzles, but... Uh, Overall, like the art design and the moments that stick out always the very magical, like sort of mind blowing things where you're just kind of like, how did a human come up with this? Uh, so they, I just, it was a game with a lot of vision, even if at times I really just didn't want to play it anymore. And I helpfully, I'm glad I stuck with it, but I, I did have to break it up into like three stints. I couldn't do it in one go. Whereas there's some people who just blaze through it in the first two months, but I'm not that, I'm not that kind of person. 
Yeah, I had two stints actually. I had like the stints up to Godric time, took a, took a couple of weeks away from it, came back and like got a lot further. And then I was actually neck deep in the game and thinking I was going to go all the way and I went on holiday for two weeks. And you know when you're like playing a game and then you go you do something <laughs> else for a bit and the spell is broken and you're like, when I got back from holiday, I was so chill and so relaxed and so happy. I was like, do I really want to go into like the pits of the lands between and like have my ass absolutely handed to me like 20, 100 times? Yeah. I don't know. I didn't. I didn't. So I just played something else. I played other games that are less like trying. But I would like to see the end of it. But it, I think it is a marathon, that game, isn't it? I think what it did really well, and this is quite unexpected, is it actually had probably the best multiplayer. This is controversial, but I think it had the best multiplayer setup of, in terms of the, apart from maybe Death Stranding, in terms of those games which have used like a semi single player, semi multiplayer thing. Like I beat most of the bosses with the help of other gamers. And like, I remember in my last two, my last day, I literally blazed through the last five, six bosses. And in the evening, like I was just up really late. Uh, and there was this guy who's, who I connected with online in the game. And we played through like a really difficult section. He was just this, he was this tough dude with a big hammer or something. And he just ran in there and he had my back. He just helped me out. And me and this guy, we matched up purely randomly over the next two days. In the, and we were on the exact same stints of our journey going through together. And every time a few hours would pass and I'd go right down a different route and I'd complete a next section. And then later on, this guy would appear again and again. And we actually got to the final two bosses, the final boss together. And he appeared, like I've been waiting for 20 minutes for someone to match with me. And he showed up and we're there with our remotes going like, yeah, it's you again. Wahoo, let's, <laughs> let's do it. Let's do it. And we ran in and we just beat him. I was met. I found this guy on Xbox. I was meshing him and I was just like, thank you, brother. Like we, you've had my back this whole time. Like I was glad to share this journey with you. And yeah, it was, it was just great. Like the fact that I hadn't coordinated it, I hadn't done it on purpose, but I had this, the end of my journey was shared with a complete stranger and there was a real sense of triumph. Like that was really well done. And I, I think that's probably something in the game that needs a bit more recognition or applause. Cause I just thought it was a lot of multiplayer is very competitive and aggressive and like PVP. And they're just, apart from when you get invaded by a bloody finger, there just wasn't really that it was very like this fun, cute co-op supportive thing going on. So yeah, I wouldn't have completed it without that stranger. So <laughs> yeah, that was great. Nice. Well, I, I'm glad that you made it in the end. You were very set on this. I was listening yeah. to So Video Games podcast the other day, and Brad, um, it's like a from uh, from fan, Brad Galloway. He's on this show sometimes, and he's currently like he's finished most of them, but he hasn't finished Sekiro. And I think it was like this kind of blot on his like gamer card or something. Yeah. Like he kind of felt that he you had it. I think you know when something niggles at the back of your mind, and you're like a. Uh, stressing out or like feeling like you didn't finish something you should have finished and so he's gone back into Sekiro and he's now like fully engaged in a a frustrated hate play of Sekiro <laughs> in order to like clear his game of conscience <laughs> <laughs> I mean I would love to play that game actually I've had very very good things uh, that would probably be next on my list if I had to return to to that developer once you're in it it's fine you know <laughs> It's one of these games, you think it's going to be a lot worse than it is, and then you get back into it, and you're like, oh yeah, this is 
I'm in the I'm in the rhythm. This is fine. It's just when you think about it from a distance, you're like, oh god, do I want to feel the pain? Right. Do I want to feel the pain? Um, well, we're going to talk about Zelda Tears of the Kingdom today. Um, you you introduced me to Breath of the Wild. I remember it distinctly. Coming to visit you on a rainy evening in London um, and staying at your old place, and you, um, I hadn't played games for years, and this was the night that kind of kicked off this like second phase of gaming for me. And actually, like I, I later bought, I, I watched you fight the Molduga in Breath of the Wild, um, and you were like climbing at rocks to cook extra food, and like just this thrilling, like Dune-like um, cinematic spectacle of you battling the Molduga in a Zelda game of all things, because I love Zelda and have since I was a kid. But um, so we're going to talk about Breath of the Wild today, and it's, I mean Tears of the Kingdom, and and all of that stuff. Um, we both played quite a lot of it, but before we do that. Um, there was a Sony State of Play. Um, I, I don't know if it's called that. I think it might be called a PlayStation Showcase. Um, and I thought it would be fun to just like run through some of the games that came up, see if anything caught your eye, see see if you're excited about them, um, and just build this little news block into our chat. Um, so I gather that you have not watched the State of Play, but you've seen a lot of the the titles that came out and like um, caught caught a bit of social media about it. I think some of these are sequels, like Spider-Man, Alan Wake, all that sort of stuff. So you'll probably know some of the games. So shall we? Shall we run run through it and see what's up with Sony? Yeah, tell me what happened because the thing I don't I don't have a PlayStation anymore, so I'm just I'm out of this ecosystem. Uh, yeah, so it passed me by. I wrote a little bit about some of it, but uh, it was also yeah, I just didn't know even know it was coming up. I don't have a relationship much with the PR for Sony. Uh, so yeah, it'd be great to actually hear what what happened. <laughs> well, it was it was a funny one, right? Because there was a lot of hype around this one. They haven't done one for quite a while, and so there's this assumption that all of their first party studios have been beavering away in the background, and people had really high hopes for all kinds of shit. Everyone was talking about what are Blue Point doing? They finished Demon Souls. Are they going to unveil Bloodborne? And like, what are Sucker Punch doing? Is it Ghost of Tsushima two? Um, I think Santa Monica and Gorilla have obviously had big games recently, but there were quite a few outstanding question marks, and there weren't many in the show. But um, when I watched it, just without social media, um, I thought it was like stacked. I was very impressed by it. And it was only when I went on social media afterwards and saw Xbox's salty tweet saying 12 of those games are coming to Xbox, which was like some real proper like shit posting from Xbox. But um but for me there were there was some really good stuff in there, even if it's cross platform. And that stuff doesn't really bother me anyway. But so I've I've split it up a little bit. Um th- these are the highlights basically. I've got six indie games that are really exciting, couple of triple A's and then like the also runs. But the first one that caught my attention and top of my list, top of my hype list is Sword of the Sea. Um from some of the minds behind Journey who split off to make Abzu as Giant Squid and The Pathless, which was on my Games of the Year list. And you saw this trailer, right? Uh, yeah, I did. I did. Astonishingly similar to Journey, but it looked good. <laughs> right. I mean, they all are in a way, right? Abzu is just underwater Journey, wordless and like iconography and uh, working on freedom of movement and all of that stuff. But Sword of the Sea is like, I was thrilled to see them going back to sand surfing, like the super fun Journey thing. Mm. And they seem to have like mixed it with bits of Pathless, which has got very like kinetic, flowing movement. That just looks thrilling. I, like that was my top one for sure. Yeah, I mean, it looked almost uh, looked kind of like Journey just mashed up with 
like Tony Hawk's pro skater or something, you know, like they've really just doubled down on this, uh, traversal mechanic. Um, right. Yeah. Sometimes, sometimes devs do that, right? Like, um, neon white where the guy who made donut County, like cute little puzzle game went ahead and got obsessed with speedrunning, And so his next game, he just built speedrunning into it. It does seem like sometimes a developer just wants to make a certain kind of game and they just do it and go with it. And like you get this kind of odd hybrid. It does seem like an odd hybrid of like wistful because the mood of those games, it's it's super like, um, how would you describe it? Like the journey, pathless, abzu. It's a little bit of wonder, right? Yeah. I mean, the impression I get almost is that like, maybe... I don't know. I'm just, I'm just pontificating here. Maybe like sort of the sea. It looks like maybe there were assets. Maybe when this happens, when people are developing, there's like assets that were designed originally for a game and maybe even tears, the kingdom factors into this. Like developers were experimenting early on with a little thing, had something that caught their intention, couldn't make it into a full game. And then later in the down, the further on down the line, they're like, Oh, maybe I could do something with that. And when I saw this clip, it looked kind of similar. And I also get the impression maybe with Absu as well, maybe they tried out underwater sections. They're like, okay, we can't fit it in the whole game, but let's make it a swimming game. And yeah, yeah, it's cool because they're all very much, they could all very much just be in the same universe or part of the same story, really, if they, if, if they wanted to make it that way, like canon, but like visually and stylistically, they're, they're very like all cut from the same cloth, you know? Yeah. Absolutely. I can imagine a making Pathless, actually, and just falling in love with the mode of travel. I don't think you've played that one right, but it's where you have to... No. The, the landscape is littered with little talismans that hang in the air, and you're an archer. And if you run, your, your movement meter charges up. Whenever you hit um, one of the talismans, you get more dash. So you have to aim to dash. So your dash, aim, dash, aim. It's like auto-homing arrows. So you're kind of engaged in this constant... Uh, making yourself move forward and it also has breath of the wild style gliding and like uh, going up in the air but i can imagine i'm making pathless and thinking wouldn't it be fun to trick in this game basically yeah and so maybe it's like the extension of pathless's movement is like tricking on the sand a little bit of journey a little bit of that same mood but just taking it further yeah but the next one that the next ones that I've got here are Talos Principle 2. Talos Principle is a game that I've got, I think I've bought it on two different platforms and everyone's always telling me I should play. I have not played it. It's a puzzle game where you're organizing light beams and stuff, but also with like a Witness-esque, from what I understand, like meta story to it. And this one was presented like a sci-fi trailer. It had like an AI Asimov kind of voiceover talking about what is life and stuff. Looks visually impressive, but no gameplay at all. Just a bit of a recurring theme. Did you um did you did you play Tales Principle? For some reason, maybe I get it mixed up with another game. I feel like it was a Does it originate as like a source mod or something? We're making that up. Dunno, it could be. I feel like I might have seen it around years ago and kind of been like, mm, wouldn't surprise me. I don't know. It's something worth Googling, probably. But yeah, it seemed like one of these kind of player mods or something that or it's built in the Source Engine. I don't know. I never played it, basically. Long story short. Uh, it's one of those ones I've seen around, but never quite... I struggle with puzzles. I, I don't have the attention span. Yeah, I get it. I think like sometimes when a sequel comes out that looks really good, it will make me go back and play the original in the build-up to the sequel release. 
That's happened a bunch of times. And I think this might be the same with Spider-Man for me, which I haven't played. Um, played Miles Morales, but not Spider-Man. But the, 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 to polish out these these indie ones, um, Neva or Neva is coming out from the developers that made Gris or Grease. I really don't know how they pronounce it. It's a Spanish studio called Nomada. But Gris was really, really nice, man. It was gameplay minimal, but just like a sensory experience with watercolor imagery um, and this very, very hand-drawn, beautiful like aesthetic to it. Um, we didn't see any gameplay in that one either. It was a cutscene. Looks like it's got combat this time, but that was a really nice one. Um, and the other ones I've got here were the Plucky Squire, which a lot of people seem to be looking forward to, which is like a cartoon fantasy adventure where you're mm. like running around as a little blobby um, elf and sometimes you go into the walls a little bit, like Link Between Worlds. So you flip between 2.5D, 2D, and 3D, um, which looks cool. There was a game called Revenant Hill. As soon as the, the cat face with the cross eyes flashed up, um, I think everyone who's played Night in the Woods just went like their eyes popped because it looks like, um, again, no gameplay. It was like a, a cartoony cat running through a world. Um, did you play Night in the Woods? No. I was actually put off by the art style. I saw the cats and I was like, that looks dumb. I'm not playing that. <laughs> but You might like that one, you know. That's like a if you've got like a, a rainy weekend somewhere and you're switching your hand, um, like... That's a that's a good one. It's a, it's a good little game, but it turns out that that game is by a new studio called the Glory Society, which is made up from some of the people who made Night in the Woods. I believe that the main um, developer of that game passed away, but it's some of the team, obviously the artist, and some people that made Stereo Fighter, a game I've never heard of, and Doom 2016, hilariously. And I got a press release about it afterwards, which actually told me what the game was because the trailer didn't tell you. And they say it's a narrative adventure game with farming elements where you strive to build an egalitarian community. So, who knows? And the last one I've got here was a game called Ultros. This was, like, super cool-looking Metroidvania, Dead Cells-y. I saw that one. Yeah, eye-popping visual style on that one. That, that looks actually nuts. looked cool. I, I, that was one that I kind of got in I think I got my email inbox, and I was like, oh, looks pretty good. Yeah, the art style is really nuts. The color palette isn't something I've seen before. Really cool looking. I'm guessing it's a Metroidvania. We only saw like 2D platforming in combat, but I think it's got it that is. Hollow Knight feel to it. Yeah, the way the colors were shifting and this sort of voxel art, like yeah, it looked yeah, it looked cool. So, bunch of great indie games, all of which um, Xbox um, shit posted back at PlayStation because they're going to be multi-platform. I believe all of them, but there were a few. AAA reveals as well. Um, Alan Wake 2, a game that I did not expect to pick this year and have counterpicked in my um, Fantasy Critic League, which means I will lose points of it as well now. But Alan <laughs> Wake 2, um, really interesting trailer, actually. It turned out that in this game, you don't play as Alan. So mm. you're playing as like a, a female detective who is um, with her partner going into this crime scene situation in the the same town. I forget what it's called, Alan Wake. Um, Sorrow, probably, or something like that. But um, it turns out that Alan is, like, up to his old tricks, and he's, like, basically writing a Stephen King-style book, and what he's writing is becoming reality. And it seems like you play as, like, someone who is entering that reality, just a, a regular IRL police person. Yeah. Um, and strange things start happening to you, and then Alan was revealed as the the source of the strangeness. Um, so it looked pretty cool. I wonder if uh, how how much that will tie into control. 
because of the same universe, right? Yeah, there is. Um, I have not played this yet, right? Because I played like 60% of Alan Wake and tailed off. Um, but there was an AWE DLC for Control where Alan is in, in the game. Mm. Um, and he becomes one of the world events, like the world, uh, forget what they're called, ESP oh, phenomena. Yeah. And now Jesse has to deal with the, the spirit of Alan. So definitely tying it together. It looked what? more like Resident Evil-ish to me, like more scary monsters, less like shining a light at a shadow. There are actual like monsters coming at you in this one. I'd be quite interested to see because Alan Wake, when I first built my gaming PCs, we're talking like 2008 or something. It was around the time uh, DirectX 10 came out, which at the time was like very revolutionary kind of graphics technology, right? Yes, when you had, I don't even know what you got. You kind of got like, volumetric shadows and all the kind of stuff we take for granted these days. But there was a, there was a teaser trailer or an E3 trailer for the original Alan Wake in 2007. And it was like meant as a showcase for direct X 10. And it looked like jaw droppingly beautiful. Uh, and it was built as an open world originally. And then obviously mm. it went into development hell for all these years and it came back out and it wasn't open world and, it took them so long to make that it kind of was aged by the time it was even released. Uh, but I would be interested to see if they actually, now that they've got the technology, if it would be more of that kind of open world or if it'd be kind of now they, whether would they be pushing those limits again? I don't know. But I remember this is like, this is one of those like cornerstone games of like when I first started properly gaming, being really excited for it. And then it never ever coming out for what felt like years, but probably <laughs> wasn't that long. Yeah, it's like, it's kind of fitting for Remedy, right? Like, I have a strange relationship with Remedy games. Like, when I really enjoyed Control, I semi-enjoyed Alan Wake, but something about the world, something about the, the Remedy universe is thrilling and hypnotic in a way that I cannot even grasp fully. Like, I bought a PlayStation 4 only to play Control. Like, that upside-down triangle and, like, the, the image of Jessie, like, using her psychic power and stuff was... I don't know, Remedy has really got something going on. I don't think anyone is making that successfully Twin Peaksy stuff like they are. So mm. I'll play it, but it, it definitely looked more Resident Evil to me. There was a lot more um, walking through tight environments, like with stuff coming out of the shadows. Yeah. Um, but also the big, the other big AAA reveal was Spider-Man 2. I know that, I think you love Spider-Man, right? Am I getting that right? <laughs> When I was growing up, I was really into Spider-Man. I had I had a Spider-Man subscription. Uh, I mean, I really I, I hate all the Marvel film stuff, so not that into that. But I've still got a soft spot for Spider-Man uh, and the the games. I mean, the original the original Spider-Man two, and I'm talking like PlayStation two here, whatever. That was one probably the most hours I've ever put into a game cumulatively in my lifetime or one of the most, you know, that was, that was just years of me swinging around New York. Uh, but I played the, the PlayStation four one and it was, it was good, but I'm a bit, I don't know. I don't know how you can make a sequel because surely if it's just in New York again, like, I mean, I guess, <laughs> I guess the new Zelda is set in the same world as the previous game. Right. But, I don't know. I don't know how if it would feel as novel and exciting to be exploring the same city. Uh, I don't know what they're going to do with that, really. Yeah. Um, I mean, I played Miles Morales all the way, and I think the fact that that one was in winter, Christmas everywhere, there's Christmas trees, um, and it had that festive spirit going on, like set it apart a little bit. 
Um, yeah. Spider-Man 1, I think, was set around Halloween, so it had the kind of spooky, spooky New York feeling. I don't know. I think swinging around Manhattan is never going to get old. Um, some of the stuff that I thought looked good was the catapult, because you know the hard part in Spider-Man really is getting moving, and once you're moving, it's great, like flying down mm. Fifth Avenue. Um, and But getting getting that motion going just takes a minute. And so they've got this catapult now where you just shoot into the sky and you're just like, you're just there right away. Um, and there was a wingsuit as well, so a bit of that. Um, a lot of scripted gameplay, I would say, like at least what was shown. Like, you know, in Spider-Man, when you're swinging through the streets chasing a car, you yeah. catch up to it finally and the chase is great. And then what happens is basically a QTE gameplay-wise. You just like hit square to do a cool thing and then Spider-Man takes the car out. It looked yeah. like that. So my my only concern with it, I think it looks great and I will play it, but my only concern was like that overly scripted QTE-based gameplay, which is not my favorite. It's not the most playable, if you know what I mean. But out yeah. in the open world, Spider-Man is great stuff. Yeah, definitely. Um, there was a bit of a PSVR 2 showcase as well, if you can call it that, really. Um, seems like that... I mean, I have a PSVR 1. I'm an like, enthusiast fan and owner of PSVR, and I feel no temptation to get it. They unveiled three samey-looking shooters, new songs for Beat Saber, and like a Resident Evil remake VR mode. Um, don't know what is going on with that, but the support for it is just not there at the minute. Yeah. Um, some other bits of hardware, there was the um, Project Q, which is their home streaming like shit switch. <laughs> which seems like the exact wrong response to Steam Deck and Switch if you ask me but have you have you tried streaming at home from your consoles? I've never ever ever been able to stream any game effectively or well you know even when I've been in the same room as the console same same like I'm not sure who that is for I guess there are specific use cases for it like a family that is sharing one television. But if there's a family sharing one television, it's probably cheaper to buy a new TV than to buy that little thing. Yeah, I mean, why wouldn't you, I don't know, just release like a downscaled version of your games on a, you know, you, you could probably power a lot of games with like some of the chips you get in smartphones now. Like what, this streaming thing, I just, until we're all on 6G or something, I don't really see how it's going to, go anywhere really it just seems impractical yeah yeah i've tried it i've tried like streaming a bit of biomutant from ps5 to my ipad and just uh bluetooth the controller but it's so much faff pairing up the controller um and it was always glitchy and frame droppy and like juddery never had a smooth streaming experience um sometimes i think the people that are making tech stuff are like living in this kind of cupertino or like la kind of wi-fi paradise with fiber optic million gig internet or something and they think that everyone has it but so yeah that'll, that'll be a pass for me um there were a couple of other games i know you're an assassin's creed um stan i would say um mm. did, and mirage got a release date in october that's my birthday there we go it's just for you probably, kieran probably shouldn't say that on the air but that is my birthday <laughs> yeah i wouldn't want anyone pelting you with like nice tweets yeah, yeah. I mean, no, I'll definitely play it because I am, against my better judgment, I am an Assassin's Creed stan. I mean, I can't deny it. I just, I just love being an assassin. What can I say? Where is this one set? It's like Middle East. I think this one's. I don't know if it's a reboot of the original. I think it's actually set in 
in the same place as the original Assassin's Creed. And I think it's, from what I understand, they're sort of rebooting the series to move away from the open world RPG thing so that every other game will be kind of RPG style. And then they're going to have more sort of linear stealth focus. Like this one's going to be more kind of linear and stealth focused and a bit like a return to the roots of the series, which is Mm. more cinematic and all that. And then the one that's going to follow after that, I don't remember where that's set is going to be, is going to be open world again. So I think they're just trying to mix it up a bit and have a bit Mm. of a tighter focus. I don't know. Um, I think it'll be more stealth. I think it'll be good. I love the stealth gameplay and, I don't know if you ever played Assassin's Creed 2 and those old games with like Ezio. Like they they were fun stories. They were just really, really fun. Well written. Like they were silly, like very like camp stories, but they were <laughs> they were fun, you know. And I think there was a bit of that lost when they went down the RPG route. And I think the stealth element was lost, especially. And like the whole thing of the Assassins is they're kind of stealthy, sneaky dudes. Uh, so bringing that back would be cool. I think if they do it right and they don't go too much into the farty sci-fi stuff again. Yeah. Um, I think I'll wait and see on the reviews on that one. I've kind of had, I've still only 15 hours into Valhalla. There's plenty of Assassin's Creed for me if I want it, but I'll see how people come down on it. I reckon, Mm. um, there are a couple of other big ones, I guess, Final Fantasy 16, a Metal Gear 3 remake, um, Ghost Runner 2, a Souls-like called Phantom Blade, um, a couple of anime-type mechie games, and then I guess the only other big one was like what Bungie is doing. Um, this game called Marathon. Apparently it's a reboot. Everyone seems mad about it online. I hadn't heard of it before. Um, very cool trailer. Very crisp and fresh, but no gameplay. Um, mm. And so I think it's going to be some kind of multiplayer FPS, which just rules it out for me. But I don't know. I can't fresh art style, at least. Yeah, me neither. But all Bungie fans seem mad about it. I think the old one was single player and they were hoping it was going to be that again, but it turned out it's multiplayer. So yeah, that was the uh, the PlayStation showcase. Lots to look forward to, especially the indie ones. Spider-Man and the indies, Alan Wake 2. I thought it was fine. There's still not really any PlayStation game that's convinced me I need to get a PS5. And really? Yeah. We need to talk about Horizon sometime. I've got Horizon. I've got Forbidden West on... Uh... I don't PS4. PS4. Uh, oh yeah, you were mixed on it. Actually, well, the weird thing is, is I gave my PS4 to my stepdad, so whenever I'm at my mum's and everyone goes to bed, I'll load up the PS4 and it's got all my old games on it. It's got GTA Five and it's got uh, Forbidden West. So whenever I'm at my mum's, I'll get like a solid two evenings of Forbidden West in. <laughs> I feel like nice. every six months that I'm there, so. Next time I'm back in next month, I'll play a bit more and see how it goes. Get as far as um, Vegas. Get to the Vegas section. All these characters are annoying me. (laughs) Yeah, the writing is not the best in the the sequel, but some of the sequences. I think once you get to... There's a town called Plainsong that is amazing. It's it's a town that is built into satellite dishes, giant satellite dishes. Mm. Yeah. and there, there is a Vegas settlement, the wreckage of Vegas in the, the desert. And some of those sequences were mind-bogglingly great. It was like that top-tier kind of real AAA cinema amazement, like mm. at what is possible in games. I think 
Forbidden West had a fair bit of that. Didn't stick the landing, but some like moments that are worth seeking out, I reckon. I think it would be like a new Last of Us game would basically make me buy PS5. I think that's probably the only, there's the only exclusive like, IP I can think of that would, I'd sort of be like, okay, I'm doing it, I'm doing it, I'm buying it. <laughs> I hope you do. It's fun. It's fun talking about those big games. Yeah. Um, but the big game at the moment, at the minute, it's neither Sony nor Xbox, it's Nintendo. So let's talk about it. It is, of course, The Legend of Zelda, Tears of the Kingdom. I mean, you had you had a pretty unusual relationship with this one. I remember that you reviewed this game and you were playing it pre-release. So when the world was at its most excited about Tears of the Kingdom. Yeah. Um, and everyone was like just absolutely dying to see it. And the hype was at its absolute peak. You were playing it behind closed doors and you mm. weren't allowed to talk about it. So no, like I don't know, and there were no guides out there. There was no info out there. So you got perhaps the freshest playthrough of anyone. Um, how was it? How was it playing this game behind closed doors? Uh, well, I think I had a week or two weeks, maybe two weeks with the game. Actually, I'd say roughly that, maybe a bit less. Uh, and well, it was very frustrating because it was like amazing from the get-go, and I had absolutely nobody to talk about it with. Like, I couldn't, I couldn't tell anyone. Uh, you know, and with. Without going into too many details, I mean, Nintendo are quite strict, understand it. You know, well, they're, they're known for being strict when it comes right. to Right, did like they leads. NDA you fully? Yeah, I mean, you have to jump through a lot of hoops if you want to get something pre-release um, as a reviewer from Nintendo, uh, let's put it that way. And uh, did all of it. I even got a Switch, sorted my Switch out, uh, got the game, and yeah, I began playing it, and... Like, yeah, there was no guide. I remember I downloaded it and I'd finished the day of work. And I just sat down and I had this weird feeling. I was like, oh my God, like I'm one of the first people in the world to be play to be having this experience. Like this is, we're in Uncharted. It was a quite a strange feeling because I do get some stuff on pre-release, but never anything this big. And usually I get stuff on launch day. So people are installing at the same time or something. So this was kind of, this was kind of nuts for me. And yeah, I could. There was no guides. If I got stuck, I just had to keep going. Uh, I had, there wasn't anything online about it, and it was quite funny. I was seeing a lot of people online, like silly articles in the lead up. Some websites being like, "Oh yeah, there's there's no shrines in Tears of the Kingdom. They're completely gone." Like all these people just coming up with stuff, and I couldn't correct them. I couldn't be like, "Hey there, like <laughs> your clickbait is a lie." <laughs> I just had to be like, <laughs> I think the only person who saw it was like my girlfriend when she was over and she was like, Oh, what's this game? They have horses. She loves horses. <laughs> and I was like, Oh yeah. yeah, it's got, it's got good horses in <laughs> the best horses. I think that that horse animation in this game is the best that I've seen in anything. Yeah. They're good. They're good boys. Yeah. Um, the center of gravity. It's hard to get a convincing horse animation. Hard to get a convincing mm. like quadrupedal animal um, animation. I was playing a game called After Us last night, 
and they're all just like these stiff little kind of wandering dogs and stuff. But the, the Zelda horses, like the tilt of the spine, the way that they, the rhythm and the motion of them is just nuts. It's quite similar to the Shadow of Colossus horse movement. Yeah, another good yeah. one. Um, but yeah, but you're yeah, playing was, this one before everyone. It's kind of nuts. It's kind of nuts to think. Yeah, I just felt like, I don't know, taking, because it's such a big world in this game as well, like taking the first steps into this like uncharted territory was just quite a magical experience, you know, and I was, I was just, I was just captivated from the second I began and I was, all this cool stuff, there was just all this, I, I went in with such an open mind and there was just all, all this cool stuff and I was just like, oh my God, it's so cool. <laughs> I, I, can't, I couldn't express it at all. Uh, but yeah, and it's stayed that way. I mean, I guess the only difference is, is for once in my life, I'm actually a, dozens of hours ahead of most of the other people playing it, uh, which is quite rare for me because I'm quite a slow gamer. Yeah, I've seen some nuts hours counts. You know, on Switch, you can see what your friends are playing. You can see this trending tab. Mm. So I clicked over there. Some people seem to have 100 plus hours in the first week which I don't know how that's like physically possible. No. Um, I'm on 60 right now. Have you checked out your hour count? I think I must be on about 65, maybe 70 now actually after yesterday. Uh, but it's weird because I only ever played like 110 hours of Elden Ring over the course of a year and a bit. And I've already nearly hit my entire time on Elden Ring like in the couple of weeks since... Tears of the Kingdom was like landed on my Switch, um, which is kind of crazy because Elden Ring felt like a much longer, a much longer. I was actually watching this thing earlier, Neil deGrasse Tyson talking about time dilation and like general relativity, and I actually was having some ideas about like, hmm, did they work this into Tears of the Kingdom? You know, and an object <laughs> moving faster than you in space, time moves slower for things moving faster than you but for the thing that's moving faster doesn't experience it and i had a bit of this with elden ring and tears of the kingdom i was like i'm moving faster through tears of the kingdom but time went slower in elden ring even though it was the same amount of time just spread out i don't know uh so very different like traversal right elden ring you're kind of plodding plodding through this world like the run speed. I think the thing that su- surprised me most about Elden Ring is how slow it was. It was my first From game, the combat being so slow, like yeah. seeing the, the hits coming in, like, gonna hit you, gonna hit you, gonna hit you, and then they swing, and you have all the time in the world to get the parry right. Like, um, it's such a slow game. It's such a plodding game, and a sad game, a heavy game. Um, mm. And the thing with, like, Tears of the Kingdom, I, I've been playing a lot of Tears of the Kingdom, um, and went back into Jedi Survivor, which I was obsessed with for like the week that I played that. And the thing that I noticed was like, Tears of the Kingdom is so slick, so yeah. slick. Like the running, the when you jump to catch something, you can most like ninety five percent of the time, you, the things that you think are going to work work. Um, and if you combine that with like the gliding, the the way that all of the systems hang together, and just the fact that like when you're running over land, like there's never like something that Link will hit and run against. It's just like silk. The whole experience is like this mm. silky, sanded, like high sheen gameplay experience with so little resistance and so few glitches and problems. That like when you try it out, try out another game next to it, like going back to Jedi Survivor, which is full of jank. Like I didn't really notice it when I was playing through, but like you often run against a surface and kind of do weird little float 
Um, Zelda's yeah. not like that. I think it's the being able to climb on everything, the interactivity of it, and just the 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 competence with which this game was made just kind of leaves other games in the dust in like game feel sense, I think. Well, it's just how there's just hundreds and hundreds of different little systems that are all just greased and like working together perfectly. Uh, I haven't seen any glitches. I don't think I've seen any glitches. I haven't seen anything like bug out. I haven't, you know, in games of uh, first, I, I don't even know how they fit it into 16 gigabyte. Like it's it's bigger than most games on like better consoles, which clocking at 100, 150 gig. They've just crammed it into 16 gig and there's more going on. Uh, I mean, yeah, just, I guess the broader point being like, it's just a sort of technical marvel, this, this game. I mean, I don't know if, my impression is that Nintendo basically exists to like make Zelda and... That's what their devs really care about and really love. And then everything else is just sort of making money to carry on with that, basically. Because there just seems to be a level of love and like attention and competence in this that I haven't even seen in other Nintendo games. Yeah, it's like it's the absolute peak of Nintendo. Nintendo is at the absolute peak of um, of gaming in some ways, right? And they always have been. It's it's. I love seeing how they persist. Like, you know, when you've got, like, the PS5, Xbox, people shouting at each other on the internet, whatever, about frames and teraflops and uh, whatever, textures, film grain, all that stuff, motion blur and all ray tracing. And then here you have Nintendo coming in with this, like, 720p open world game running on, like, a kind of seven-year-old mobile phone chip. Um, and it's it's just blowing all of those games out of the water through the the care, attention, detail, Um just professionally made game. Wow, I sound, that sounded so salty and bitchy of me. I'm not saying the other's not professional, <laughs> but just, you know, the the execution is just flawless, is what I'm saying. I've seen two glitches in 60 hours. A wolf ran into a cliffside and a shadow pop. That was it. Yeah. And out of all of the systems in this game, like, I guess we should talk about what we are and aren't going to talk about for anyone that's worried about spoilers. It's a very spoilable game. Um, yeah. I've been very careful about it. On the last episode, I talked strictly about the opening area new skills and landfall a little bit of lookout landing basically i think people really appreciated that i think no one wants to be spoiled on this game it's a game of discovery and wonder and finding everything out for yourself is um is is the fun in this game so we are going to talk today a little bit about mid hyrule area a little bit about the northwest of the map mm-hmm. a little bit about the underground areas but what we're not going to talk about is the south uh, zora Tarrytown, Hatano, Gerudo, the Labyrinth, all of that stuff is off the table. Um, we're not going to talk about any rare items, hidden outfits, major quest outcomes, anything like that, or, or the, the larger mysteries of um, what's under Hyrule this time, um, any late game abilities or weapons, any of that stuff, um, and, and not much on the story either. So we're limiting it specifically just so that people can listen without fear of being spoiled. And we're going to do our absolute best on that. And I think having like a little bit of a tight focus on map areas is a good way to do it. I think the game pushes you towards Rito Village. Um, I don't know if you listened to the last episode that I did about this, but I talked basically up until Landfall. Um, I have done Rito, Rito Village and that Rito quest line, which I think most people seem to have done at this point. Um, and you've done that as well, right? Yeah. And we both went different ways after that. I went to the Goron area. You went to the Gerudo area. 
But I think given the kind of zeitgeist of where people are at in the game, it's safe to talk about Rito at this point. Yeah, definitely. So Rito Village was my favorite in Breath of the Wild. Like all of the settlements have such a different vibe. You know, the kind of horny feminist warrior Gerudo town and the dramatic Zorans with their sci-fi cathedral that they all uh, live in together. And the, the Gorans with their like clumpy cartoon stupidity and comedy value, the dwarves of the game, I guess. But the Rito seem like the most noble somehow. I, lo- I love their grace. They're, they're so delightful to look at. I remember coming <laughs> to Rito Village and like the, the textiles and the way that the architecture, the way that it's built in this like tree shape. This was, this was my favorite um, of the four kind of different race settlements in Breath of the Wild. And it was really fun to go back there. Did you go there first? Was that your first um, story Breath, beat that you went for? In Breath of the Wild or in Tears of the Kingdom? In Tears of the Kingdom. Uh, yes, it was. It was. I think I, I think I sort of farted around Lookout Landing for a bit first. Um, and actually, I don't know. What did I do? I think I started in Lookout Landing and then because there was no stable when you first got there and I was trying to impress my girlfriend with the horses, I was like, I'm going to find, because she picked a horse and I was like, I'm going to find a stable. And obviously there was no stable anywhere near. Like, I didn't realize you had to, so I went on this big quest to find a stable. And then I spent most of my time trying to unlock the towers to open the map up. And then I went to Rito Village. So I had this sort of very meandering quest. That, but yeah, Rito Village, I'd say, is the first major kind of story area that I, that I went to. I had exactly the same experience. You get a horse right away if you play Breath of the Wild, right? What did you call your horse? Um, <laughs> we'd been... Uh, Helping Addison with President Hudson's signs, this 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 NPC fellow that you see all around Hyrule who always needs your help. Um, he is just what a simp, eh? <laughs> he is just in love with President Hudson. So we were like me and me and my girlfriend were playing, uh, well, she's watching me play, and she was helping me solve the Addison things. And then we were like, "What should we name the horse?" And she was like, "Name it President Hudson." We couldn't fit Hudson. We couldn't fit President Hudson the full thing in. So I was like, it can be Hudson or President. Uh, so we settled on President. So my horse, is, my first horse was called President. <laughs> Mine was called uh, Salad. Salad. I don't know why. First word that sprang into my mind. I did the same thing. Got a horse, a lovely one. It had like this kind of tortoiseshell hindquarters and like a beautiful mane. And I really wanted to keep it. So I ran around forever looking for a stable. Um, no stables on Hyrule uh, Field. Um, and there was, a, I actually looked it up. I was like, where is the nearest stable just so I can get this done and get on with the game? And there was one just to the west, was the closest one. Went there. There's a Hinox sleeping on a bridge. And I've got three hearts and a stick. Like I was not going to take on the Hinox. Yeah, so yeah. I kept that horse for bloody ages and actually found a stable as well. But I'm quite interested because you were having a bit of a nightmare your first, like, couple of days on this game i was getting texts from you and you were like having an identity crisis about you were like i don't know if i like it ah and yeah you, you seem to i knew you would you would come round. like at the time i was like john 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 it's okay it's okay it's good the game's good like you're gonna be okay um but yeah it's quite interesting you've, you've kind of i don't know you had a very bad start by the sounds of things 
I did. And you know what? There was a couple of things that triggered that. It was like the first area, the Sky Islands, beautiful, perfect. Like, I absolutely love the curated nature of that section of game. I love that it leaves it a little bit open. Like, you have to use your ingenuity. You have to learn how to build. You have to get, like, a carriage. You have to use the rail cars. Figure out how to get on the ice. Perfect, perfect opening of the game. Absolutely beautiful. And then when I got down to land, I went off-piste a little bit, looking for stables, and found a couple of shrines. Um, tried to do the shrines, um, and they were full of machines that I had not seen anywhere. I didn't know what they did. There's like one, you know those things that will make, you glue it onto a structure, and then when you activate it, it will make that structure pop vertically. Yeah. Have you seen that one? So I, was, I found a, a, an entire shrine that was about those. Could not figure it out. Didn't know what they did yet. Hadn't encountered them in the wild. Um, and got frustrated and left. Went to another shrine. Um, there was like a, a pinball-style shrine. There's a big gold switch in it. And um, the switch, to me, looked just like a lamp or something. It looked like a feature of the the architecture of the shrine. Didn't even hit it. And so I was trying to solve a pinball puzzle without having even clocked that it was a pinball puzzle. So I got very frustrated with that. Um, did the first mission with Robbie. We go down into the chasm, um, the deep part of the game, um, and couldn't find my way out. So I kept going back to a map marker where there was nothing. And so this this is like a three-hour section of game where I'm just hitting walls hard. And I'm like, I don't know if I like the building. Um, I don't know if I like this deep place. Like, I don't even know how to get out of here. I was getting really frustrated and mad. Um, and I actually watched one of my favorite streamers, this guy called Kyle Bosman. Really funny guy. Great watch. He did like an eight-hour stream of his first Breath of uh, Tears of the Kingdom moment. And I watched the whole thing like in four chunks. I've just been watching it while I'm cooking then turn it off, and the next day, like, watch a little bit, um, just when I'm doing something else. And he got stuck in exactly the same place. Like, he was like, how do I get out of the deep? Kept going to the map marker. The exit is gone. The NPCs have vanished. Turns out <laughs> that if a map marker is glowing, you're on the same level as it. If it's not glowing, it's a map marker on a different level. So this is actually a <laughs> rare sticking point I got with Tears of the Kingdom, right? Was that I think even if this, this streamer, who is an extreme pro gamer, I would say, like a real pro gamer, um, got mm. stuck in the same place as me. That's a little tripwire right there, the, uh, the yeah. getting out of the deep thing. And you have to just fast travel out. It's simple, as easy as pie. So yeah, yeah I, I, I hit a wall pretty hard there. And I was like, I was doubting the game for a second there. No, you, well, you know, you'd have to rename the podcast. <laughs> you know, Breath of the Wild anymore, I'd just be like, ah, oh, Tears of the John. Tears of the John. Right, there was some Tears of the John there. I was definitely having a little crisis. I went and played other games for a bit, came back to it. I just kind of got back on track, you know? I think mm. if you actually... I decided to follow the story, which is a strange thing in um, an open world game where it's all about experiencing it your own way, traveling the way you want to go, following your nose, exploring this vast realm. I decided, like, seeing as I'm having these teething troubles, I'm literally just going to follow it. Every time an NPC says, hey, by the way... You heard about Rito Village? It's snowing. All right, I'm going to Rito Village. Um, so I just followed the trail of the story. And it turns out that the tutorialization in this game, because there is so much to teach you in this game, right? It's like the fans. It's gluing. It's how to build, how to use um, wheels, how to put things together. There's a lot to get into your head. It's a complicated game with a lot of controls, man. Like I'm yeah. constantly pulling up my weapon as if I'm going to throw it when I'm trying to use Ultra Hand or whatever. There's just a lot to remember, a lot to hold in your head in this game. 
And it turns out that if you follow the follow the trail, the breadcrumb trail, quite naturally, naturally seeming, but actually very well done, you will encounter half-built machines that illustrate what devices do. It's like a little cue for you to follow that template and finish a machine and then use it. Um, and if I followed the trail, I just followed the trail of story, um, and and I found that the game was teaching me how to play it. It was just a missing link where I, yeah, no pun, no pun intended, where I tripped over my feet and went into the deep end, basically. I mean, that is what's quite interesting about the shrines in this game versus Breath of the Wild is Breath of the Wild, you get your little gizmo or whatever, you get your little, you get a little present in the in the chest, and then you get your your um, what are they those things called? Oh, the things that give you the heart and the stamina. You get one of those. Orbs. Orbs. You get your orb. But it wouldn't really like everything was very self enclosed in those shrines in Breath of the Wild. Whereas in this one, I feel like every time I leave a shrine, I've not only gained an orb and a bit of loot, but I've also been taught a new way of playing the game or like a new way of using some of the systems in it, you know, that I didn't really think about. You know, there's, there's some. Uh, again, I don't want to. I don't want to spoil any shrines or anything, so I'm not going to. But there's some I've gone into and then come out and be like, "Wow, I didn't know. I didn't know I could do that with that thing." Uh, and sometimes it's a little bit like if it's something you already know, like it's one of those combat tutorial shrines. It's a bit frustrating, but most of the time, I've it's kind of nice having something that you can actually take out back into the into the wider game world rather than just a power up. Uh, Absolutely yeah. agree. I love what they've done there. There's nothing that makes me happier in this game than like coming to a new area of the map and finding a half-finished machine that is using pieces I've never seen before and being like, okay, wow, so if I like put on these batteries here and put on this like small wheel and big wheel and combine that with like a rocket to get over this little... You know, they're, they're kind of showing you very... In a way that seems like a diegetic tutorial. So it's like it's a in the game world. So it looks like this tutorial, it's a tutorial in a way, but it's actually just a part of the world that looks like they were casually strewn there that lets you, that lets you learn. Yeah. No, definitely. Super cool. Yeah. So I got back on track, thankfully. And now I, I absolutely love this game. Like I'm having like ecstatic time with this game. <laughs> it's strange. <laughs> it's like, there are good games that you fall in love with a little bit and get obsessed with a little bit. Jedi Survivor recently for me, absolutely loved it. But this is a whole different thing. This is like, I'm emo emotional about this game. It's so good that I'm besides myself a little bit. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, some of the games I've loved the most ever have been ones I've absolutely hated. When I first, you know, remember Hollow Knight? I had this, I had a, probably had a similar meltdown to you. When I first started playing Hollow Knight, I'd be messaging you, I'd be like, John, John, this game isn't fair. John, I don't like this game. What are, the game's stupid. The game's too hard. And then I like... 70 hours later, I was like, oh my God, it's amazing. <laughs> yeah. I remember your dirt mouth text. No, the forgotten crossroads, like oh, yeah. scream of angst in my in my chat from you. I was <laughs> trying to shepherd you through it because I had the same experience. <laughs> but yeah, once you get back on the rails on this one, um, like going to the, this is an interesting one. Like as I, as I was saying, like the fact that it is Breath of the Wild was just a vast open world, go where you want, pretty much. It was very freeform. Um, and my playthrough was very freeform too. Uh, you look at Hero's Path, you know, just all over the map. Um, and the story was so loose-knit. It was like a very soft hold on the story in that game, you know? There's a story there. Yeah. It's distributed through these memory points that you find. 
Um, very free form. I think this game has got a level of structure that took me a little bit by surprise. Like um, that initial tutorial area of the Great Sky Island archipelago was very, very scripted in a way. It still had a little bit of a loose hold, but scripted. Um, and the fact that now we have these whole different type of mission quests in, in Tears of the Kingdom, um, where they are heavily scripted gameplay sequences that did not exist in Breath of the Wild at all, basically. Mm. Um, and I think that for a lot of Zelda fans who were uh, um, felt a little lost in Breath of the Wild and felt a little bit like Zelda had gotten away from its roots, I didn't feel that way. I think Breath of the Wild was a perfect expression of Zelda. But the fact that we now have these script, these pure Nintendo level-designed scripted story sections um, is is a layer on top of Breath of the Wild that is getting back to the roots of Zelda, but but really adds to it in a way that I was not expecting. I thought like getting away from the linearity of the Zelda formula was one of the strengths of Breath of the Wild, but now that I see it layered on top of that in Tears of the Kingdom, like I um, can't believe it really. It's like another another layer, another level. It adds some variety, it adds some focus. Um, I absolutely love it. And the Rito one just absolutely blew my mind. I mean, it kind of, that's exactly it really, isn't it? It's because you, there's still the same free form, like when you're on the surface world of Hyrule, there's still that free form, like fart around, like have your own little adventure freedom that was in Breath of the Wild. But whenever I start losing interest and losing track a bit, like I know I can just go follow these side adventures or go to the depths or go into the Sky Island and like, or just follow the story and bring in structure again. So it keeps it fresh because it's not just completely linear and it's not just completely, you know, fuck around. It's, it's, uh, you have option. You just have so many options. I think this game above all is just giving players options, uh, in everything you do. Like (laughs) whether it's whether you want to like just go around looking for Koroks or if you want to just blaze through the story and do the whole actual legend bit of Zelda. Yeah. Um, yeah, actually seeing in the, um, some of the promotional materials for it. And I like, really like something they put in there in like one of their press releases or, or mail outs. And it was kind of like they played into the legend of Zelda thing by saying tears of the kingdom is like, because it's a legend. I'm probably afraid. I'm not phrasing this as eloquently as they put it, but it was like, because it's a legend, we know that Link went to these places during this, but the order is told differently depending on who's telling the legend. And I just thought that was really cool. They were like, like we know he went to Rito Village. We know he went to this place and this place and this place. Uh, we don't know what order he did it in or when he went. And it was kind of this nice way of like bringing the player into this like mythology element and how you're kind of creating your own mythology as well as experience Mm. yeah there was a conversation about this on the discord um people were talking about what makes because this game is an open world game and there are so many of them but this one has got such different qualities to it um that just feels entirely different it feels like its own thing which is an amazing achievement when there are you know scores of open world games all trying to chip away and Mm. get the perfect formula and this one just seems to stand apart from them one of the things that we talked about, I was talking to Graboloid and uh, Poke Kid Blake and Narita Boy about it 
and soccer, I think, in our Tears of the Kingdom channel on Discord. And we came up with the idea of like authoring your own story, basically, feeling like feeling like you are writing your own story as you play a game and you're doing things in a way that other people have not done it. And you are there's a sense of agency and a sense of possibility. Um, and that kind of fits with what you're saying, I think. Like the sense of freedom that you have in these games and the sense that it's not like a... This is why I'm so surprised that the scripted section slots so eloquently onto the the uh, the open world formula because you still feel like you're writing your own story, but there is a sense of... Yeah, the the, the legend of it all. I think this, this Rito uh, village section... You get to Rito Village, there is a, a young Rito called Tulin, who is, um, and there is a storm over the, the town. It looks different from it, the way it did in Breath of the Wild. It's snowbound. They rewrote the theme so that it's a snowy version of the Rito theme. It's like a, a new way to see the same place. Um, and you, you basically have to follow this young Rito called Tulin, who is struggling to get up to find the source of the storm in the sky that is making life very difficult. They're not getting food, all that stuff. So you follow Tulin up, up a mountain. Um, Tulin lends you their, their ability in this game, which is to blow wind with their wings so you can glide further. And so along with this little NPC buddy who's giving you a new ability, you work your way up through a series of Skylands and a very scripted sequence of gameplay that felt to me um, like mythic. It's like, as you're saying, it was bringing the, the legend to the Legend of Zelda. Like this felt like a Greek myth and then Link yeah. like climbed the sky islands and was bounced like going across these airships towards the storm. Like as I was playing this, I was tingling. I was like, I feel like I am playing like a, a Greek <laughs> myth in this game. Yeah. No, it's just, uh, but power means also a bit like, I don't know. I don't, because of how open-ended it is, I think there is a bit of a conflict because I don't feel any urgency <laughs> to like find Zelda. I don't know about you. I'm just like, she's out there. Like she could be anywhere. I don't know where she is. Like I could happily just fart around and like, like, do we need her back that quickly? Could I just carry on like visiting, <laughs> like just chilling out and fishing and stuff. Cause like she's, she got us into a few scrapes, you know? And last time I cleaned up this, this land, I thought it was all going to be fine. And then she went and messed it up again. So like, why, why am I putting in this work for her when I could just be riding my horse and like seeking out cool clothes? Yeah, it's different to, I think Breath of the Wild was the same, right? It's like Zelda is in Hyrule Castle. You know where she is in Breath of the Wild and she's holding off Ganon and she's been doing it for a hundred years. And then you're Link like picking up chickens for some local farmer and throwing them <laughs> into a pen. And like, uh, you know, uh, snowboarding down Mount Hebra and Zelda all the time. It's just like sweating away in Hyrule Castle, spending all of her strength on keeping Ganon away. I like that they shook that up. So yeah, mm. in this game, like Zelda has vanished and there are sightings around the kingdom and you're, you're chasing around trying to track down what's going on. Um, and yeah, the Rito is like a, a Zelda sighting potentially, but it's also this immense quest. And I guess... I guess the thing that really struck me about it was as I was jumping up the ships, because you jump up a sequence of ships. I, I saw them right at the start, actually. I looked up into the corner of the map in the sky and saw these ships circling a cloud. And it's one of those moments in this game where you see something in the sky and you're like, I cannot wait to get there. 
Um, there's another one where there are, there are like waterfalls coming down from high up in the air. There's like a big cube in the distance. Sometimes you catch, a dragon catches your eye. All of this like sky magic catches your eye as you're walking around the world. And I was kind of surprised and pleased that they started the, the quest lines off with a bang, basically, because we got straight up into that um, sky armada. Um, and I really enjoyed this this ascent ascent through the ships where... You have to jump, you have to use your ascend ability to go through rock, you have to combine it with your new tooling ability, which allows you to glide straight without dropping, so you can do these precipitous little flights between blocks. And then there's that new thing where there are ships with sails, and you can bounce on the sails that will shoot you up in the air. The ships are all moving, it's like kinetic and stormy, um, and the whole experience of, of the ascent to what lies in the heart of a cloud just absolutely blew my mind, honestly. The tone yeah. um, and the gameplay is so different to anything in Breath of the Wild. The, the scripted nature of it, the focused nature of it, and the linear nature of it um, sucked me in in a way that I just was not expecting. Yeah, definitely. definitely. But I've even found it with like some of this... This I like they've introduced side adventures, you know? It's not just side quests, but there's like these longer, almost sort of main story length little adventures that are tying together lots and lots of different little quests into them. And mm. um, I really like that high, I think because Hyrule is just a more populated place because they've been trying to rebuild since the first game. And it just feels like, I don't know, there's more like a human, uh, not human because they're not humans, but there's just a more of a, I, I don't know, there's more of like a, a human. More, more populous. Yeah, it just feels like the things you're doing have more of an impact. Like you're actually helping people and solving issues. <laughs> yeah. And some of the stuff I've done has been really cool. Like, again, you can't really spoil any of it, but I've just had some of these moments which have nothing to do with the main quest that have had the gravity and like the, the sort of poetry of like a big cinematic event that have just purely been optional like you could completely miss these things ever happening if, if you just didn't encounter them you know mm. yeah something that i've enjoyed actually is like yeah there were there were a few people walking around hyrule in the old game but they were really a handful um it was always fun if you're traveling in the rain and then like a lonely merchant is like s sitting under like this kind of overhang just to stay dry so you could find them but i felt like there were maybe like 20, 30 people in Breath of the Wild walking around in the wilds on their little mm. paths to and from somewhere. But in this game, there are loads of them. Something that I've really loved, actually, is meeting some people who are in a scrape, being attacked by monsters, whatever. You kill the monsters, you talk to them, and they're like, yeah, we're doing this, we're spelunking. Um, yeah. And now we're going to go and continue spelunking. And then you think, okay, well, that was that. And then, like, you know, three hours later, you'll meet them again in a different part of the map being attacked by monsters again. And they're like, yeah, we're still spelunking. We feel like we're getting closer. And so there are all of these little people just moving around the, the world of Breath of the Wild just on their own little journeys. And you cross paths with them again and again and again, and they reappear in different parts of the map. I think I met this Goron guy who was trying to walk somewhere um, and like helped him out with something. And then, you know, hours later, I find him and he's like halfway to where he was going. And he's like, oh, it's you again. Thanks for helping me out. Yeah, I'm still on my way. I heard this rumor. Like it's so it's so alive. I, I love I love all the um the lively characters that are wandering around Hyrule this time. Yeah, yeah. It's just less lonely. I feel like yeah. there's just there's more there's more to do. It's true. It feels more social.
Yeah, well, I am quite intrigued from like a law perspective, though. I mean, where are all these people hiding in the first game? I don't really know what the time difference is. I mean, it, it's a hundred years, right? No, between Breath of the Wild and this one is something like five to ten years. Oh, right, right, right. Yeah. But I'm like, where are all these people hiding? Like, this is a rapid baby boom. Right. That they've, <laughs> they've had. <laughs> Coming out of the woodwork. They were, like, tucked away in little, like, hobbit holes or something in, in the first game. Yeah, all of those buildings that you can't go into. Everyone was hiding from the calamity. And now that there is another calamity, they're out and about for a walk. <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, I think my favourite has got to be Anderson. This, yeah. this guy, this guy is, this guy is going to be like meme quality legend from this <laughs> the game. The legend of Addison. Yeah, like he really is having as much of an adventure as you are. I can't believe the president is standing. Yeah, he cut, he... Like, what, what is that line? What is that line? <laughs> <laughs> He's like, what? The president is standing? <laughs> when I first left uh, Lookout Landing, I'd say my first... Probably two hours of the game, I encountered Addison no less than 12 times. So my first, like, two hours out of Lookout Landing were just helping this Addison guy. And I was like, again, because I was playing this like no one else had played it yet. And I was like, is this whole game just me helping this guy put his sign up? It's a game about signage. It's a, it's a game about signage, Kieran. Yeah, I wasn't encountering anything else. At one point, it was honestly, it was like back-to-back Addison. And I was like, this guy, is just, he's going to be on t-shirts pretty soon. <laughs> I didn't even have a cynical thought. I was like, what if I could I could mock up an Addison like souvenir shop online, get it all ready for launch day, and then just like drop ship, like launch it on launch day of Tears of the Kingdom. But I know that the Nintendo hammer is, is heavy and would come yeah. down on me hard. So I didn't do it, but... At this moment, the master like, oh. sword of Damocles just hanging yeah. over your NDA. NDA I've ass. seen him less since, so I, I, maybe I just sort of got weirdly unlucky and just encountered him many times in the very early game. But it took a while for me to realize that there was more to this game than just helping a dude like <laughs> simp for a construction boss. <laughs> I have to say, right um, when it comes to Addison, um, this is the the sign wielding guy who has these difficult, weighty, bulky signs that he's holding up and you have to use nearby wood and stone to make the, the, the signs stay up. And when you do that, Addison is grateful and thanks you with a meager sum of rupees and some rice, traditionally. Um, sometimes a bomb as well. Sometimes a bomb. If you're lucky, you get a bomb. But the thing that strikes me about Addison and Link and their, their difficult relationship is that Link could... Hold the sign for Addison. And Addison could put up the sign. But instead, <laughs> Link is like, you know what I will do? I will use these 10 planks on this bumpy yeah. ass ground to make it stand up. Why don't Link, Link, hold the sign, man. Just hold the sign. I'll build a sort of like <laughs> Rube Goldberg device out of like 100 twigs and like some stuff I'm in my pocket. So that your sign doesn't fall. Like, also, why don't you just just take the sign off the pole? Just put the pole in first. Right. Get placards, uh, man. Get lawn yeah, signs. And <laughs> attach the thing after the main the structures in place. But I don't know. It's quite good. It's taught me a lot about um, polygons and like triangles. You know, because they say the triangle is the strongest structure in 
in the world, in the universe. It's one of the strongest ways you can structure something. And when I've been working on Addison's signs, I've always leaned towards triangles. It's kind of I've kind of learned the power of the triangle through through President Hudson and, and Addison. Yeah, oh, yeah. and it's, carry go on. ahead, go ahead. No, it's fine. Um, Addison is a lot of fun and there's a whole bunch of stuff in this game that I think they're repeated little quests but they are they are so fun so different all the time like Addison is one thing I really like that in this game stables are more of a thing they're more social like um, there's a newspaper now in the game and everyone is reading the paper so when you go and talk to them it's like a fun way of delivering NPC information they'll tell you what's in the paper you encounter a journalist you encounter an editor the, the journalist side quest is really fun in this game um and I like that at Wells, um, the, rather at Stables, there'll also be Wells usually. This is a mm. new thing, as far as I can remember, that at every stable there is a well, and you can jump down it. Uh, Discovery will come up on the screen, which is a new thing as well. It'll be marked on your map, um, and you can have a little walk around in a well. Sometimes it's just one cave, sometimes there is a puzzle, sometimes it leads to more. Um, there's a lot more people hanging around uh, at Stables now. They really feel like these little social hubs in the wilderness, um, combined with all of the pedestrians and uh, journey like sojourners just wandering around Hyrule, like it, it definitely adds more flavour to it. There's there's more to do in this game in a way. Mm. No, definitely. I mean, I've found the the newspaper one's quite a funny one, isn't it? Because I mean, I'll, uh, again, how much how much can you spoil? I don't know. I don't I don't know. Sometimes I I've, I'm kind of taught, there's almost so much to do in terms of these long quest lines that I'm a bit spoiled for choice. Sometimes I'm like, do I want to do the newspaper? Do I want to go and find the glyphs? Do I want to do the main, the main like regional, the regional ones, whatever you, I was going to say divine beasts, but regional yeah. phenomena. Yeah. Regional you can talk about the newspaper does... quest. I think maybe not the ending of it, but like what it entails to actually do it. I mean, it's on the way to Rito and we said we were talking about the Northwest. So yeah. as long as it's not, the resolution of it, I think it's fair game. I haven't actually finished it. I, I've, I've probably because of just getting distracted and, and not knowing what to choose. Uh, but it's almost like I don't know wh which main, which of these quest lines is more important. Like, do I just want to help this bird with his newspaper? Do I want to uncover ancient mysteries? And I'm kind of, I'm enjoying the bird guy. Like, I think these, it gives you a reason to go to stables. I like also going there and getting your pony, what's it, pony token, pony points. Pony points. Yeah, and unlocking things you can do with, customize your horse. Uh, yeah, another yeah. new fun thing. Yeah, it's, it's fun. I really, I, I just think it's kind of funny they have this like 1920s, you know, hack, like approach to like, oh, oh we're working, working the new, you're working in the news, boy, like... Forget all that savior business. You're going to go do some journalism, find out what's yeah. happening in the stables. Like it's just a really fun little take on, on different. I guess a lot of when they're bringing these NPCs, these little quests, and probably the same with Addison, same with the newspaper, the Clover Gazette. It's like these people having parallel adventures to link, like exploring the same places, doing the same, having the same sort of struggles, but coming at it from the approach not of a warrior and not of like a swordsman or whatever they want to call link it's like 
we're still trying to solve the same issues here, but in a very, very different way. Uh, and it just adds a lot, so much like personality to the game. Having this, especially having like a journalist character who's like, we're just going to like inquire and examine this rather than go in and chop everyone's heads off or something. Yeah. Yeah. And like the more that you talk about this stuff, the more it makes me think that one of the big changes to Hyrule here is that in Breath of the Wild, it was like a, a, a handful of villages um, in these tiny outposts where there wasn't really much. And it felt very disconnected. It felt like a broken society. And I guess it was like, a different time in the in the chronology like um there was an active ganon problem um, and so maybe everyone was just hiding away and they were just still rebuilding but in this game it feels like people you, you hear a lot of npc dialogue about people delivering things from village to village like i'm taking this stuff to sell at that village and my friend lives in Rito Village and I have to go and see them because of this over here. You have the newspaper that is recording all of the news of the entire kingdom and distributing it again. And so it feels like this this society, and if you combine that with all of the people wandering around on their own little adventures, it feels like, um, it does feel like a more social, more connected world now. Mm. Yeah, I mean, what do you think of the depths? Because I do not like it down there. Right, so we didn't touch on this in the last episode, but I think there is a depths mission in the tutorial where Robbie takes you down there. Um, there are these big red gloom-covered sinkholes all over Hyrule, and I think at this point it is safe to talk about it just a little bit, right? So what has happened here is that after the intro of the game, um, Hyrule Castle's been blown up in the air. There is gloom coming out of the earth, which is like the inciting incident of the game, and these sinkholes are everywhere. And after you get your paraglider, which happens as soon as you hit land, basically, if you follow the tutorials, like a good good little player, um, which I do advise in this game, um, you find out that you can parasail and fall and dive down these sinkholes to what lies beneath. And what is down there is the deep. Um, and we're not going to go into too much of it because I get the feeling that like we're trying to judge where people are at in their Zelda journey. And yeah. I think like you... Uh, most people find the deep to be intimidating and the most um, strange part of the game. And so people are running around in the overworld, they're exploring the skyland, they're doing little quests here and there. But the way that the deep works is when you get down there, it's pitch black. It is a, a, a vast expanse of darkness. And this is so cool. I feel like the deep could be an entirely different indie game or something. You get these light bud arrows, little glowing arrows, and if you shoot them, they will arc through the darkness, hit something, and illuminate that spot. And so you have to walk through this darkness. There are little glows. You can hear the cackles of monsters. It's claustrophobic and weird. Um, but yeah, you light it up bit by bit. You start to light it up and realize that there is quite a lot down there. Um, won't go any further than that, but there is uh, mysteries to find in the deep also. But, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, I think I thought this game was going to be Sky Islands and Hyrule. Um, and the fact that there is like a whole third layer to it that no one was expecting, and that it's a completely different form of gameplay, the completely different mode of exploration. Um, and the, the darkness is so um, contrasting. If you go up into the Sky Islands, there is golden light. There is slow ambient woodwind music, the singing of birds flowers you're flying it's you're in the clouds it's like a dream 
And then when you go down into the depths, it's inky black and cackling and scuttling. And it's like a nightmare down there. Like this is an unexpected addition for me. I, I, I love that it is in the game. Well, yeah, I don't know if it was really in any trailers or anything. And also the fact they didn't really introduce it straight away in the tutorial section. So if you landed, you made landfall, and then you just decided not to follow Robbie's quest, like you could have quite easily just... I actually think I didn't go down there for the first like five, six, seven hours, maybe 10 hours I was down there. I just was like, oh, those scary red places. I'm not going there. Uh, and you dive down as, as you're falling down this pit and then you hear the same music, like the piano, like, and then it like opens up and it goes like, and like, yeah, <laughs> total um, moment. Yeah, it was just a curveball. I mean, I have some friends who've said like it's their favorite place in the game. They're like, this is yeah. the best part of Tears I've of the Kingdom. I've heard a lot of that too. I think it's that contrasting um, factor. Um, I'm just a scaredy cat. I don't like being. I don't like spooky, spooky places. I've actually, I've, I've done one one game session where I went down for some reason. I can't remember why. I went down uh, one one chasm just for a look, and I found myself like gaining a little bit of confidence down there. I think I had like 50 giant bright bloom seeds so I could really light the place up, you know. Yeah. Um, and I followed the trail of these um, these glowing light roots that you can see, this like pale glimmer in the distance. And you know that if you get there, you'll be safe. And so I went between, I think, five of them and like opened up like a quarter of, of um, the, the underworld and found some interesting stuff down there. There's more down there than I thought. And I do think that the contrast, if people were moaning about the lack of dungeons in um, Breath of the Wild, they got more than they were bargaining for this time around. Um, because yeah, there, there are like traditional Zelda puzzle dungeons. Um, like at the end of the Rito quest, when you finally get up into the cloud, um, you'll find the, the air dungeon. And it's a puzzle sequence that will take you half an hour to complete and there are different floors and keys and switches and it's like classic Zelda gameplay. And then there is the deep, which is like a, just a new kind of uh, Zelda dungeon in a way, right? Yeah, I mean, it also has this kind of Minecraft element to it. You know, you have like this ore, which I realize if you want to play around with the machines a lot, all the building stuff, you're going to have to at some point mine some zonite, like the the ore thing that you and you can trade it with the constructs and all this. Um, I kind of got staged late in the game. I was like, you know, uh, right at the start of the game, you're given a little battery, and they, they kind of tell you the constructs tell you then they're like, you can have more battery if you do thing. Careful with the spoilers, like, Kieran. Careful with the spoilers. No, there won't be any spoiler here, but. They tell you that right at the start of the game, and I kind of ignored it. And then I've started doing it. I had to go into the depths and just like clock some ore with a rock hammer, and uh, go back to that guy right from the tutorial who, who offered that to me, and trade it. I'm, I'm bartering with a robot with rocks. <laughs> this is not something that ever seemed very Zelda. It seems like a Minecraft thing, you know. You're like, oh yeah, I'm gonna build stuff by farming ore. I don't know. It's it's this weird mining element, and you, you know, you you get kind of the having to like be. You're like a little miner. You're like a little grubby miner dude. It's just like chopping rocks. I don't know. It's it's just it's just a very different pace of pace of game. And there's still some 
pretty cool challenges down there as well. But I think the vibe is just same reason I couldn't finish Dredge. I just the the, the eerie it's vibe. It's oppressive, man. It's me. oppressive down there. Yeah, I'm just like yeah. Yeah, it makes yeah. a big change of pace. <laughs> it's, I mean, my my attention has gone to revisiting old places a little bit, like um, rediscovering the map of Hyrule. Um, yeah. Because I think a lot of us absolutely adore Breath of the Wild, and it's a lot of people's favorite games. And it's largely because the world is just so vast and rich. And actually doing like a second lap of Hyrule and seeing how they've subtly changed all of the places that you know and love and seeing them in new ways. Like I loved seeing Rito in snow and like solving that situation. Mm. Um, so I, I've spent a lot of time doing that. And then the lovely air islands, just the music, the light, the long shadows the feeling of freedom up there um, and the, the the connected series of islands that you have to navigate to try and... They're like mini dungeons in the air um, and rather than walls, there is space so you can't fall, basically. So it's like a different approach to that kind of puzzly design. Um, and adding on the depths is a, a complete tonal curveball and I think like a new kind of dungeon for Zelda, like a new kind of environment for Zelda. Um, I'm not like an ultimate Zelda expert who's played everything, but... I do think that like it's just something so new for the series. It's it's maybe like the cherry on the cake when it comes to what Tears of the Kingdom does differently. Mm. Yeah, and I, I would also say that I, I said this in the last podcast, but Nintendo has often made games for children. Nintendo, um, I think, consider their core audience to be young because um, yeah. they continue to make games that are fairly simple to play most of the time, and it it does not surprise me. That they've taken when Zelda, when Nintendo look at the world of games, I don't think they see Horizon Zero Dawn and um, Ghost of Tsushima and think that's our competition. I think they see Minecraft and they see Fortnite and think that's our competition. That's what kids like. That's what kids are playing. And so the yeah. fact that they've ignored open world orthodoxy entirely and continue doing their absolute own open world, but added in elements from games that you might not expect to see like as you say like a minecraft economy and uh like that iconic um fortnite skydive into the map like it does not mm. surprise me that they've seen that that's what kids are playing and they've gone well i guess we should uh they've leaned there rather than towards the red deads of the world you know what i mean yeah yeah definitely but it works it's just good john it's better than breath of the wild that's my that's my opinion. <laughs> Absolutely it's same. A, it's the best open world game. I don't. I actually like. Could you go back and play Breath of the Wild now? In and 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 not have a little part of you that's like, oh, I wish I could just ascend. <laughs> I think <laughs> I'm a little bit. I think like at that. this point, like companion pieces, really. I think Breath of the Wild. This it will always have a place in my heart. I think. You know, like growing your stamina meter and huffing up the side of a mountain like a little ant. Yeah. And um, this and paragliding that that simplicity is beautiful, but everything that they've built on it has made for like a fuller game for sure. Um, it's it's a different proposition. This one, um, yeah. I'm very impressed with how they built on on Breath of the Wild in this game. Um, there is more here than I thought there would be. If any, I think there was a little bit of discourse that people thought, what if it's like DLC? on the same map, but the systems that they've put on top of Breath of the Wild is, is, is nuts. Yeah. I mean, I don't know what I was expecting, to be honest. 
I don't know what I was. I was kind of thinking. Yeah, I was just thinking Hyrule with Sky Islands or like, or it would be mostly Sky Islands with like a bit, little bit of Hyrule or even mashed up somehow. But it wouldn't be that different, really. And I think I found myself when I first started trying to do stuff. I think there's actually a big area of like the the jank and like the conflict people experience early in the game is that if you've played dozens of hours of Breath of the Wild and you load up Tears of the Kingdom for the first time, I was trying to play this game like I was playing the other game. And the yes. stuff, the approaches I was having just weren't working and they weren't clicking and it was frustrating. And I was like, why does it, like, I'm playing it how I meant to play it. And then this game is like, no, you're not. You're, you're not. You're playing a different game. Like, this is this is chalk and cheese. You've got to try our way now. Um, Absolutely. I can't yeah. tell you how many puzzles I've come to a dead end with at least i'm over this now like i'm i'm back in back with the program but like the amount of puzzles that i came up against in the early game and i was just banging my head against them um and it was literally just ascent ascend through this platform or yeah. reverse reverse time on this on this thing and it's fixed it's like the new skill set i've got 280 hours i realized and i was looking at my switch on breath of the wild that's like you know 10 days of my literal life um, te- like 10 plus 12 days of my literal life I spent playing that game um, so it's muscle memory at this point to yeah. huff up the side of a mountain and to try and find a jump off point and glide somewhere it's just inbuilt I'm programmed to do it and so unlearning that um, and figuring mm. out that you have to really use every skill in your arsenal all of the new skills matter um, has definitely been a bit of a change um, but sorry Karen but at the top of the Rito village, just to finish off that little strand, um, th- there is a dungeon. So one of the big concerns people had, right, was the dungeon thing. Um, and when you get to the top of the, the bridge of ships, you get to a huge storm cloud, you get above it and dive into it in the most dramatic fashion. Um, and then when you're in there, it turns out there is an air dungeon there. Um, and so dungeons are back. This was something that a lot of people wanted. Um, and how did you find it? How did you find the, cause I, I used a guide. I'll be honest. Like I, I solved like 95% of the puzzles, no problem. But a couple of the times, as we're discussing now, when you had to, for example, glue something to something else, like just a piece of, a piece of world. Well, I guess we can talk about it. We said we were going to spoil this, but there is one point where there are two cogs and they've been split in half. Um, yeah. and I could not figure out like, how do I get this to work? I was trying to use all of my ultra hand, trying to pull them, push them. It turned out the solution was to use a fucking icicle, break down an icicle, glue it to the cogs, and then they all start turning together. So you have to use the environment in a way that I just did not think of and would never have thought of. Same with a switch. There's a door with a broken switch. You have to glue something to that switch Mm. to open the door, right? So in that first dungeon, like I hit walls, um, and I looked up those two solutions I looked up. Um... How did you get on with this um, in a, a guide-free pre-release situation? I had absolutely no problem. <laughs> to be honest. And, and I don't know, because some of these puzzles, especially that one in particular, is it's a Half-Life 2 puzzle. It's like really? exactly ripped straight out of Half-Life 2. Like these, you've got a broken cog, you need to find the thing that goes on the thing and so you can turn it. Like So... Maybe it's just I've played different games, but it just was a familiar puzzle to me. And 
I think I just turned on my uh, auto hand and I was like, okay, what's glowing around here? Oh, there's icicles. Right. And, uh, you just, just got not, it. I didn't get it, him. man. I didn't get it. Um, but I think that you're a little bit of a different kind of gamer to me in that way. Like when it comes to sandbox mischief, I think that mm. like there are kinds of gamers that do and don't like that. Um, and I think when it comes to Zelda puzzles, like Zelda puzzles are usually like push the block onto the switch. Um, and then what do I do with this other block? And like yeah. being able to easily identify everything that you're supposed to use and then just execute. So it's a logic puzzle, you know, but these yeah. puzzles have got a bit more of a creative spin on them. Like looking around to see what I could break off in the world is not something that occurred to me. Like I just looked at what was there. Like I see the co mm. turning cogs, three of them, bit of a gap there. Can I pull them closer together? I just think about what I see right in front of me. You know what I mean? So I, I mean, think I that think maybe yeah, your sandboxy mischief is uh, helping you out there. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I tried it first with a spear, I think. And then the spear like didn't have enough like purchase. <laughs> I don't know. I couldn't get a purchase on the cog with, with the spear. Um, and it snapped off and I was like, okay, well it needs to be something bigger than this. Like, but I don't have anything bigger. So what is bigger? Oh, icicle. Um, and I think, I don't know in this game, it's the puzzle is the physics. It's not the, it's not the bits and pieces, you know, and I think that's what you're ultimately playing with. Uh, and that's what makes it different. You're, you're basically, how can I play with the rules of like gravity and, and weight and momentum and mass? Uh, and you know me, like I really like, I like anything around games where people break the rules. I like mods for the same reason. Like how do you take a little mechanic from one game and then turn that into another thing just by messing with the code? Like even people who, like this, you see these people who, complete ocarina of time in six minutes by like backflipping through like a gap in the wall and all this. Like I love that kind of stuff, you know, and this game just kind of lets you really do that. And I don't know. Yeah. I just maybe, but also maybe it's because I didn't play breath of the wild as recently as you did. Like it was a couple years. I think when you came to visit, I'd already completed breath of the wild and I was sort of revisiting it and just chilling out with it at that point, but I'd kind of stopped playing. So I didn't quite have the same, it didn't have the same hooks in me in terms of how I've approached mm. problems. Right. Shaking uh, off the dogma a little more. Yeah. I also think maybe but it, it might even have been as something as simple as like earlier in the game, an enemy fired an arrow at me and it hit an icicle and the icicle fell. And then I realized I could pick up icicles. Mm. So maybe a spontaneous encounter just taught it to me sort of subliminally. And in yeah. a way it didn't for you, you right. know? Yeah, I missed those cues. I didn't get that cue. And that's what I was talking about at the start of the game when I had my difficult period of Tears of the Kingdom. It was because I was missing cues or I hadn't had the cues in the right order to be able to have built the knowledge I needed to solve puzzles. So yeah, that's another one for me too. Like if I did what I tend to do, which is go off the beaten trail and wander around the hills and just end up somewhere. Maybe I've missed those stepping stones that have been laid out for me elsewhere in the game where you will be attacked by an enemy that is holding an icicle and that will just plant that in your brain. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I do think that in this game, like the, with, with the vast grown possibilities of what you can do, I do think that 
that introduces much more um, potential for confusion and missing cues, especially for the way that my brain works, at least. I think the only stuff I've really missed, like had to actually look up is when you encounter an NPC who just says like the most cryptic shit to you with no, like you don't get a, a quest marker, you don't get any information, you don't get an object. It just is like, blah, 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 dot, dot, dot. Yeah, when the like, owl flies above the seven pancakes, then yeah, fire yeah, an arrow like, towards the moon. You're like, excuse what? me? What? Okay, and then I Google yeah. that because I'm like, what? <laughs> I'm not wasting time like doing your riddle, man. Like, just tell me what yeah. you want. Absolutely. Like, uh, what's in, in Lookout Landing, you've got the little the little stone man and you speak to him and he's just like, Poe. Yes. Oh. And I'm like, what po, do you want? Po, I don't know what you want. Leave me alone. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Such a creepy little thing. <laughs> but yeah, just to, just to round this out then, I mean, um, I've been quite late to the game with fusing as well. Like, you know, enemies will come at you with all kinds of funny shit. Um, and it's almost like the the ways that enemies have combined elements to, into strange weapons teaches you the possibilities of doing so. Like I was uh, like a bow coblin with a mushroom came at me one time, um, a mushroom attached to a spear and he hit me with it and it bounced me. And I was like, okay, yeah. so right. So if you put like a mushroom on a spear, that enemy has just taught me that some things will create a bouncing effect. And so I started fusing more now. Um, I was doing some of the obvious stuff, like sticking a soldier construct horn onto a Zonai weapon. Um, yeah. Basically, it's a little sub game, right? It's like, how can I combine all of the hundreds of things in my inventory, like maybe too many, um, to, to make the most powerful weapon? Um, but what's the most powerful weapon that you've come up with so far? And how did you find the fusing and the weapon grafting? It's quite interesting because I remember your, one of your complaints about Breath of the Wild was that you don't get to hang on to weapons you like. This lets you like, I have favorite combos now. So I feel like I don't really lose the object that I enjoyed using because you can just be like, there's a couple of bits of loot that I'm like, I really like that. I don't want to break it. So I'm not going to use it. It's just going to sit in my inventory. But on the whole, I'm like, yeah, like I really like that combo of this, this thing. Uh, so I've managed to make like quite power again. I don't want to get spoiler territory. There's, there's a couple of things you can fuse, which will give you an insane combat bonus, but only for one hit. Mm. So, so it'll give you a single hit of like 90 and then that's wow. it. Wow, 90. Uh, Crazy. So, you, you know, there's there's moments when you're in combat that that can be kind of useful. Uh, right, you can one-hit something with that probably. I found it more interesting actually when you... I don't know when you've when I've had to kind of make elemental things, you know, when there's been enemies that can, or say, I've run out of arrows, and it's like, I know I can only attack this with lightning, and I'll have to like find something lightning to go on right. whatever a vault fruit, like a, like a soup ladle attached to like an electric watermelon, and I just throw <laughs> that at someone, um, something like that, you know, or even the fact you can attach zonai devices to weapons is quite the. the when they first introduce rockets uh, and you realize you can fuse a rocket to your shield and then like, you know, and you go like fly up into the air. I thought that was amazing. I was like, wow. Oh my God. I, this, there's untold limits here. Um, so I've had more, I'd say more fun with the ones where you've 
it's not just been a little buff for combat, but it's actually been like a weird little new way of, of moving through the world. Uh, mm. That's when I've enjoyed the fuse the most. Yeah. Same with uh, adding a fan to something so you can blow it away or anything like that. Mm. Yeah, I haven't really used devices that way at all. I've used, I think the one that I liked, again, it was because an enemy dropped it. It was a, a flame emitter on a shield. Um, and if you guard, then your shield will start to spew out flame. So what you can essentially mm. do is um, guard whilst also attacking. Um, yeah. And that, that, that's fun, like especially if you're in dark places, like being able to just blast things that are coming towards you with fire uh, without even swinging your weapon. That's been like a really good fuse for me, flamey meta shields. I think the craziest ability, and it's one that isn't talked about much, is rewind. Recall, mm. sorry, recall. This has like untold possibilities that I have not even considered at all. Like... Because of the properties of how things... Like, if you use Autohan and you pick up a rock and you try and hit up a goblin with the rock, it won't do anything. But you could wiggle around the rock and then rewind, and the rock will move on its own, and it will hit the goblin and do hit damage. So sometimes you just make these crazy... You see on Twitter a lot of these videos of just people making crazy death traps that, like, you do your rewind on, and it just will just take out all the enemies and Lynx just stood there like... Mm. Wow, I haven't uh, seen those. That's really fun. Yeah, I never thought of using... I only use Recall in Puzzle Emergency. You know what I mean? I haven't used it in gameplay. I think... what well, You know you see those big Bacoblins, like the big chunky ones, and they've got all their little minions following mm. behind them. Uh, I was fighting a bunch of them once, and I got two icicles and attached them to a, a stave in the middle, spun it round in a circle, dropped it, and then summoned them all over, and they all ran at me. I rewinded it and the icicle thing went like whoop and then it just started like <laughs> and it just fanned and it just killed all of them just wiped them out That's sent crazy. them all flying and wow. even stuff like uh, I couldn't get the glider working on anything that wasn't rails so drifting it out with auto hand bringing it back then standing on it recalling it so it acts like a moving platform mm. then cancelling the recall so the glider's like in midair and it just takes you with it you don't have to push it or faff about or anything um so this is an ability i really think like i haven't probably even skimmed the surface of what you can do with it because mm. you know i'm sure there's ways of using it in platforming or anything like this uh i even have my you know when you have rocks falling out of the sky and sometimes you jump on one and you can to get up onto the floating islands have you tried this yes so, that was in the trailer. They they spoiled that in the trailer. Like being on a rock, yeah. you recall up to the sky was like right there. Sometimes they don't go all the way up, but sometimes I've noticed in the distance another rock starts falling as you make it to sort of the zenith of this other rock. So I've like kind of recalled one like this high, and then jumped off, and then skydived after the other rock falling, jumped on that hit recall, and then that the second rock takes you to the floating island. Crazy. But you've got to just be quick and got to be ready to jump on it. Wow, that hadn't even occurred to me. When when I've struggled to get to high places, I've usually thought, um, because there is like a terrain thing in the game, right? So if you're on the top of Mount Hebra and a rock falls, um, if it it fell all the way to ground level, um, you would never get to the Sky Islands because it's just too far. But if it falls onto a mountaintop, then you can get un, like unfathomably high because you're you're starting from such a higher position. You know what I mean? Mm. 
So I've only approached what it that way. What you can way. do is, if because you can, I've realized you can recall from any distance. So if you can see it falling, you can recall it. So even if it was like you were in the, the peak of a mountain, it was going to the bottom, you could recall it from the bottom and it would meet you halfway up and you could jump on it and like mm. go all the way up. Yeah, so, so cool. You're playing with time in a way. And I think that's, that's a crazy mechanic to bring into a game. Uh, and I think it's so out of the ordinary, the re- reversing the motion and like the movement of objects. It, I don't know. It's such a lateral way of thinking that I haven't even really thought about how to use it because it just doesn't, it's so it's such an unintuitive way of approaching a physical problem. You know, mm-hmm. you're like, oh, I could just re- re- rewind time and gravity would be solved. <laughs> Yeah, um, absolutely. I feel like this game, like a lot of people still play Breath of the Wild, you know, and like you see these crazy videos that, you know, it, I don't think it's putting two and two together and getting five to say that Nintendo probably saw the way people were using and breaking um, and extending past their intended use, the physics and conductivity yeah. um, and skills of Breath of the Wild and thought, like, we want to encourage that creativity. I think, um, like, even in the trailer, uh, not the trailer, but one of the launch presentations, uh, Nintendo sort of stressed that. They were like, we want to see your creativity. I think they want to be surprised. And they've set up the playing area and they just want to see what the world is doing there. Yeah. Um, but I don't no, know. I mean, so, oh, carry on. Yeah, you just see those mad videos where someone, in, you have a little, I don't know, Breath of the Wild, I barely used the abilities. Like I'd use them when you needed to for puzzles, but they just felt sort of like a secondary thing. They didn't feel like that integral. Like you could have, I could have quite happily just blobbed along without it. Really, I think a lot of those they just sort of seem like nice to have, but not that necessary. But you see these videos of people who manage to like soar halfway across the map, Breath of the Wild, by like slowing down time, launching a bomb, like jumping on it, and then somehow blasting a robot like a mile away, and then landing on it and just slapping it in the head and killing it. Uh, yeah, I mean, they yeah, they must have watched that stuff, definitely. Yeah, and it seems like people, this game is going to live, like, forever. Like, the amount of stuff that we're talking about. Like, the, the, the world is experiencing this right now, and, like, they've only just started getting creative with this game. So it really does seem like we're going to be seeing crazy videos of what people did in Tears of the Kingdom for, for a really long time. But, yeah, that's, I think that's a good run. Like, we've talked through the Rito quest. We've talked through a little bit of depths, a little bit of physics and puzzles and abilities. I think that's a good stopping point. Um, I think, like, a lot of people from, from what I'm seeing and hearing um, have passed that Rito point. have done a little bit of depth. So I think that this was, like, for this moment, like a good, um, good spoiler-safe uh, take on where we're up to in Zelda. So thanks for joining me, Kieran. It's really fun to talk Zelda with you. You know what? It's fun to actually talk about it finally because it just wasn't allowed. It's not. It's it's not cool. You know, it's not cool to not be allowed to tell anyone. <laughs> right, you're getting out all of your pent up Zelda thoughts and energy. Yeah, imagine like you were the first person on the moon, and you're like, "Oh, you're not allowed to tell anyone about us embargo <laughs> for two weeks." You're like, "The moon's awesome, but just <laughs> keep it to yourself." So yeah, it's good to get it off my chest. This is the confessional <laughs> Tears of the Kingdom. And also, nothing I really have said is a spoiler, I don't think, compared to 
day one or two of the game when I was talking to you about it and everything I said was a spoiler purely because you hadn't done it yet. Exactly. You had like 40 hours of game in your head just bursting to get out and I was like not letting you tell me anything. We still haven't <laughs> talked about some of the stuff you told me in that first week. It would still be spoilery for people. <laughs> yeah, you did a good job. Good job with the spoilers. And I, I've got a feeling that like if you're up for coming back at the end of the year again um, to talk about games of the year, then we'll probably be talking about this game again and we can like recap on the later stages of it and how we got on, if you fancy it. I think I'll still be playing it. <laughs> yeah, summer for me is not a gaming time, so I'm just going to be bringing my Switch with me places. I think this is just going to be the only thing keeping me going. All right, well, looking forward to it. Uh, thanks, for, thanks for coming on. Thanks for talking about the game. Thanks for having me, John. Safe Hyrule. Da, 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 da. So thanks very much to Kieran for coming onto the show. This was a really fun conversation and it's it's really nice to have a Zelda game to talk about on the on the podcast. I think I've never really done an episode about Breath of the Wild, despite it being one of the reasons that this entire podcast exists. It was already out um, and I played it before the podcast began. So it's really fun to have Tears of the Kingdom here now with the podcast and try and do it justice. Um, so this was the second episode about it. I think I'm going to do one more. I'm planning on having another guest on the show to talk about it. Um, it's actually Adam from the uh, Beat Your Backlog podcast, formerly Switch Indie Fix. Adam is currently on holiday in Japan. So hello, Adam, if you're listening. Um, and I'm looking forward to having Adam on the show uh, when he gets back from Japan, probably with some sweet Zelda merch to talk about as well. It looks like from Adam's Instagram that the Nintendo store was the first thing he did when he got off the plane. So looking forward to talking to Adam about that. I would also like to hear from you guys if you're playing Tears of the Kingdom. Um, I would like to hear from people who have listened to the episode. I want to hear if the spoiler warnings were enough for you. I really don't want to spoil this game for anyone. I want to hear about your experiences. You can find me on Twitter at Gaming in the Wild, also on all the other social media. Um, and there is, of course, the Discord for patrons. If you'd like to become a patron of the show and come and join the Tears of the Kingdom channel and talk to us all, um, then you can do so at patreon.com slash gaminginthewild where you can support the podcast, get all the bonus episodes and get an invite to the Patreon as well. Um, if you have made it this far, then thank you very much. This was a long one. Um, I'll be back next week with a new episode. I hope you're all enjoying Tears of the Kingdom. And if you're playing other things, I hope you're enjoying that too. Take care of yourselves and each other and bye-bye for now.